Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 3. I'm going to begin in verse 22 here in just a moment. If you're new to Christ Church, you're visiting, uh, welcome. My name's Mark. I, like Elijah, we get to be, have the privilege of being uh, on staff here serving, and, and we're grateful you're with us. Uh, I want to kind of connect everybody from the very beginning of this series that we're in uh, to this moment. We have divided the story of Jesus into, uh, let's call them movements, like you would in an orchestral piece. There's the movements throughout the music, the ebbs and flows. And so we've looked at the life of Jesus through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and broke them into sections. Uh, you might remember if you were here at the beginning of the series that the, uh, that the graphic behind me displays by different colors the movements of Jesus, the highs and lows. And uh, the first piece was about nine weeks in length, and it was called The Arrival. And we were focusing on that section, on what you would uh, believe this nativity and Christmas moments, where we looked at the first nine weeks was Jesus' arrival, the promise, the prophecies, the arrival, uh, the escape to Egypt, and the return back uh, to live in Nazareth. Uh, and so in that, in that construct, we looked at his arrival. Now we're in the middle of this 10-week piece called The Obscurity. And this is where Jesus hasn't pinged the radar yet of the large population. He's uh, teaching and he's cleared the temple and he's done a few moments where he's been brought into a small group, but he's not really well known yet. Because what we find out is when we leave the obscurity of Jesus' ministry and we go to the public part of it, then he's going to meet opposition. And for the rest of his earthly life, his life as we would measure it was ruined. He, had, he couldn't stay he, uh, in people's homes for very long. He couldn't be out in public by himself. He had no privacy. Uh, he was really pressed on once he became famous, both good and bad. Some wanted to kill him, and some just wanted to be near him. But I want to catch you up as we go into today's text of where we've been. Uh, back when I was a kid, and it was okay then, to sit in my room, I would listen to my dad's Bill Cosby records, and I would listen to them over and over and over and just laugh. And what I always... Uh, remember Bill Cosby doing really well is he would tell a story and it would be on the album, but it wasn't that funny. And he didn't get that kind of crowd reaction. But he would always go into the next story by saying this, I told you that story so I could tell you this one. And I want you to see that the last few weeks of what we've been doing in the Gospels leads us to understand this text today better. It aids it. You might go back to the water and the wine when Mary came to Jesus at a wedding and he said, we're out of wine, can you do something? And Jesus said, woman, my time is not yet. And we think that's a strange response to her. But if you remember what Jesus saw when he saw the wine was his blood. And he knew his blood would become the wine of the new covenant. And so he cautioned her about pressing him to move before it was God's time to move. And then uh, last week, uh, Gene Apple spoke to us about Nicodemus. And how Nicodemus came to Jesus and he thought he had a place, but he didn't have a place. And Jesus told him that there's a place for you in my kingdom, but you don't make the place for yourself. Jesus was telling him, I make it for you. And we were given a strong challenge last week to make sure that people in our lives know there's a place for them in the kingdom. And we looked at Jesus clearing the temple. And we, we remembered that the jealousy of God may threaten us, but without the jealousy of God, he would have left us to go to hell. 
But because he loved us and he knew what was best for us, he sent his son to die for us so that his jealousy is the thing that led us to understand his love. And then we come today to a man who's in a particular situation that I've not always handled well. Have you ever had a moment, and I think you have, unless you're 10 or under, and maybe even then you have. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you saw your place on your favorite quote-unquote stage being filled by another? Maybe you wanted the lead role in a play and you thought you had it and someone came in and tried out at the last minute and they were just better than you? Or maybe your spot on a team was filled by someone who was faster, bigger, stronger, and just truthfully better? Maybe your place in the band that you served the band and, and then all of a sudden they found someone who could play or sing better than you and they replaced you with this person and you're the Pete Best, replaced by Ringo Starr, moments before the Beatles hit. Have you ever had that moment, a relationship with a friend and you were best friends growing up and then you hit junior high or high school and you went to drama and they went to sports or they went to academics and you went to something else and They started hanging out and you just didn't have the same amount of time with them. You didn't have the same uh, experiences with them and someone else filled that and they still love you and you love them and you still are friends, but it's not what it once was. And you look at that moment and you think, I've lost something. I've lost my place. I think every one of us experiences in relationships this feeling. Today's text will take us to a man who's being replaced from his place and his Name's John the Baptizer. Let's read the text. Verse 22 of John 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this, John replied, a man can only receive what he is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but I am set ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Now this is a large text and there's probably three different slices of meat I could serve you this morning. I'm going to choose to stay in one particular part of this and leave the other two to go because they will come around in our teachings in the future. But what I really want to point out, there's a lot of context here. So here's what's taking place. Let me give you the personal drama moment. John the baptizer has, has gathered crowds of all sorts for a number of years possibly as he's preached this coming of the kingdom, coming of the kingdom, coming of the kingdom, repent and get ready. And his disciples come to him and say, master, or they call him rabbi here, teacher. It would not have been a formal thing, but he would have been their teacher. He's, they said, rabbi, the one you introduced us to, 
And most scholars, and I tend to agree with them, most scholars believe that the ones that came to John the baptizer and said this were probably James and John, the disciples, who had been following Jesus for a number of years and then would go with, with Jesus. And they come and they say, the people that used to come hear you speak, they're following him now. What's up with that? Does, does it bother you that you're being replaced does it bother you that, that your, your place in life is now being filled by Jesus and the crowds are diminishing and the pressure would increase? And John would also write that this just happened right before he was arrested and taken off the stage. You see, one thing we can learn in the initial context of all of this is that John did not measure his life by how many people came to him. John measured his life by how many people he sent toward Jesus. And if you don't listen to me for the rest of the morning, you got enough to think about. Is our life premised on how many people find us influential? Or is our life premised on how many people we introduce to the real, the real influential one? And John knew that. See, in verse 29, John does something interesting. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. And you're like, duh. But let me explain what the culture, and we'll talk about this more in the future. But the culture was, the men that served the bridegroom would take the hand of the bride when the groom arrived and they would symbolically take her hand and place it in his and then they would go to the groom's house for the ceremony. And John is saying, no, my role here was to place your hand in his, not to hold your hand for him. And it's beautiful imagery. And then in verse 30, and this is the key to all of this, John says he must increase. Must, it's a strong word. There's no option here. He said, he must increase, and then look at the other side of it. I must decrease. So they come to John and say, what's up with the crowd? Dude, does it bother you? You lost your place. And John's like, no, no, you don't understand. I was here to lose my place. And I want to challenge every one of us that in this moment of obscurity, when the crowds began to start to gather and word got out that this teacher was different than any other teacher, the John the baptizer drew a line in the cement. It it wasn't going to go away. It would be a forever line, a decision every one of us has to make, that every one of us must come to this conclusion. Who is going to increase and who is going to decrease? Is Jesus going to be the reason I exist or am I going to try to continue to exist in competition to him? Because someone better, more talented, and more equipped to run my life has arrived. Will I decrease so he can increase? Look with me at verse 33. John says, the man who has accepted it, the testimony of Jesus, has certified that God is truthful. Whoever rejects the son, verse 36, whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. There is a clean, clear line, and we have to understand it. From the very beginning, Jesus said, it is me or it is you. There's not even really an us until we decide which side of the line we're going to live our lives. All on him or all on us. He must increase, I must decrease. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is the ultimate witness to what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will always do. 
Now, I know that there are probably very few of you in the room today who are arguing mentally right now with me. You're going, uh uh. No, I know you're not doing that. But I want you to process with me what that means. If Jesus is the ultimate witness of what God has done, of what God is currently doing, and what God will continue to do, if he is the ultimate testimony, then some of the things that you and I are relying on as authoritative in our life have to be silenced because they're not true. So John gives us two things, and I want to be brief with these and to show you the so what part of today's teaching and why this is so crucial for discipleship for you and I to live out the lives God intends for us. The first thing that John teaches me is that Jesus is the one who brings clarity. He brings a clarity I can't have without him. It's a clarity I desperately need. And without it, I will make the the same mistakes over and over, and I will hurt the same people over and over, and I will just wreck the opportunity to be a part of this kingdom in a major way. Until you meet someone who has authoritative eyewitness authority, you are only speculating. So let's say we all get out of here and we all decide, hey, you know, there's what, 1,000 people in the room today? Let's go to Qdoba, and we're going to go all together, right? Are you ready about this? Are you excited? So we all decided to drive through Mayberry out there and head toward town. And we get into Joplin and we're heading down range line and we look over to the side and there's an accident. We see two cars that have been damaged and we see people standing outside those cars. We see two or three police officers protecting them and gaining information. You could walk up to the police officers and say what happened and they would speculate. You could ask people in your car, and we're really good at this. Well, I bet that guy did that, and if, you know, female driver, and blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, insert your own joke here, and then we're speculating, right? So you, we could do that, and we're good at it. I mean, we'd write the whole story. Not true, but it'd be entertaining. So the people in our car could decide what happened. The cops could speculate what happens. But if you want to know what happened, who do you ask? The female driver. Come on, people. That was simple. You ask the people in the cars. You see, a first-hand evidence will always be better than a second, third, and fourth speculation. And then John said, when they said, what's up with that? John said, listen, look at verse 31. He's the one who comes from above. And we go, yeah, yeah, he's from heaven. No, no, you got to understand. After my sophomore year of college, I needed to make some money because I was out of money and I needed to pay for two years of school. My dad hooked me up. He said, hey, I got a thing. Come home this summer. And he said, and, and work for me. And I'm going to get you, I got you a job with Town Air Freight, which at that time was this little regional delivery uh, service out of South Bend, Indiana. So I went home and lived with my mom and dad uh, that summer. And my dad said, here, here's a beeper. Now I know third hour, I'm going to have to explain to college kids what a beeper is, but I'm going to trust that you all know. And it meant that when that number went on that beeper, I had to go find a payphone. And I'll explain that third hour as well. And, and I had to have a quarter, and they get that. So anyway, so I would have to get out of the truck that I was driving to find a payphone to run in and go, and they're like, hey, we need you to go here and here. Well, when I would call for them, these special deliveries, they would put me in a big box truck or, uh, you know, or big rig, and they would send me normally to Chicago to get a part that had to go to the Ford plant in southern Indiana or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, having to go to Chicago two or three times a week in a big truck is not a fun endeavor. Because here's what I can tell you from growing up in northern Indiana. When you go into Chicago matters. Drive a box truck into Chicago at 10 a.m. in the morning, no problem. You're in and out in no time at all. Go there at 4.30 and add two hours to both directions. That's not an exaggeration. 
because everybody in the United States drives through Chicago at 4.30 (laughs) on roads that can handle about five people. And so what I would do is I would have the map and they would give me the directions. This was before GPS. You actually had to fold the big map out in the truck, figure out where you were going before you started. But the key to my success was something my father taught me. About 20 or 30 miles outside of Chicago, I would turn on WLS out of Chicago, an AM station. Every 15 minutes, they had eyewitness traffic. And it would say, don't go on the Dan Ryan. Don't go on the Eisenhower. Stay off I-80 and I-90 at all costs. Use back roads. They would say, it's 15 minutes from downtown to the turn. It's the intersection of this and this is 20 minutes in. And I learned by listening to the eyewitness traffic, I took their testimony and understood that they knew something I didn't know. They were above my circumstances and could see what I could not yet see. Nod your head if you understand what I just told you. John said to his disciples, Jesus is above you. He has seen from heaven what is taking place, and he's trying to tell you what's coming at the next turn. He's trying to tell you where to stay away from and where not to go and where to go. And we sit in our arrogance. We sit in this perception that no generation's ever been smarter than ours, that the Bible says that, but it doesn't really mean that. I'm telling you, if you spend your life listening to speculation on what the traffic in Chicago is, you're going to spend less time driving and more time sitting. But if you listen to the eyewitness testimony of those that are above you and hovering and can see more than you can see, you can actually get in and out of Chicago at any time during the day in pretty good time. You just have to be open to someone else's opinion. And what John was saying to every one of us is Jesus came from heaven, he understands the future, and when he tells us the important things of life, you have one or two choice. I know more than he does, Or he's just right. It's the line. It's the line every one of us has to choose to do. What is the meaning of life? Ask him. He can see. Remember, Jesus Jesus is the ultimate witness of what God has done and why he did it. What God is doing and why he's doing it. And what God will do and why he's going to do it. And he flies above us. He is guiding us with the wisdom we'll never have. You want to know what the meaning and purpose of life is? Ask him. Don't ask your neighbor. Don't ask Dr. Phil. Don't ask Bill Maher. Don't ask anybody that's human. Listen to what Jesus says first. He's the one who brings clarity. He is the witness who knows. When you come upon the moment, don't ask those who arrived later. Ask the one who's been there from the very beginning. The testimony that I received allowed me to do my job well and kept me out of trouble. And the more I trusted that eyewitness, the more I was able to do exactly what I was there to do. Jesus tells us how we should live. He knows. Jesus doesn't tell you how to live because he doesn't want you to have a good time. Jesus doesn't tell you how to live because he's afraid that you might become his equal. He's never going to be worried about that. Jesus tells you how to live so that the world does not manipulate you and steal your soul. Jesus is for your good. He's not out to punish you or to repress you or to to have you live a life that's just horrible and meaningless and empty. Jesus is for your good. Do you you believe that? 
He knows what's coming. He knows where the turns are. He knows where the congestion is. He knows where all of that is. And you may not like my metaphor, but I know it's on track because John said to his disciples, he knows what's coming. Listen, not only listen, but let him lead. You see, Jesus said some things that we deep down inside have to really ask ourselves, did he really understand what was going on? Or was he so high in the pie and, and pious that, or high in the sky rather, and pious that we, we look at that and go, well, he just didn't live in the world we live in. Really? Really? Because if, if I read my Bible, what was going on in Jesus' world is still going on in ours. You see, Jesus says that the truth, even when it makes you vulnerable, is stronger than any lie. He says things like, be radically generous rather than self-centered with all that God has provided for you. He says that sex is dehumanizing outside of marriage and loses its spiritual and social value. And we go, ah, come on. Really, that's just kind of old thinking. Who's flying above who? Who, who knows what God has done and why, is doing and why, and will do and why? When enemies attack, Jesus said, respond in love and you will have the power of the kingdom available to you or not. And we all have to step over the line. Either he is clarifying for me what my purpose is or he doesn't know what he's talking about. Jesus also told us whom we should serve. He said that sin has wrecked us, we did it to ourselves and no self-help or self-rescue is gonna work that you can't pull your soul out and exchange it. You have to, it has to be done to you. You can't perform your own heart surgery. Someone else has got to disable you to enable you. And in this moment, he brings us a clarity. He said, I am the one who brings new heaven and earth. He flies above us and he can clarify what's going to happen. The second thing John teaches quickly is that he's the one who brings authority. He doesn't tell us what he thinks God said. He tells us what God said. Remember, he is the ultimate authority on what God has done, is doing, and will do. Which means it eliminates a lot of other voices. It it eliminates man's idea. We cannot expect to know the will of God if we don't know the words of God. And how do we know the words of God? Jesus displayed them for us. Verse 34, the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. Jesus came to open to us a creative authority. And that's, that's not me playing. The creative words that spoke the, words, or the world into being were the words of Jesus. Do you get that? And if he can create the world out of nothing, what could he do with our lives that oftentimes feel like nothing? He can bring them the significance. He must increase. For that to happen, I must decrease. So what it means to belong to Jesus is to receive his testimony, John says. So you remember where we started? They run to, they run to uh, John and they go, hey, there's a new drummer, I think. And John's response is good. I wasn't supposed to do this forever. I was supposed to turn it over to, to him. And John was cool with that. And what's even better is James and John, who were probably the messengers of that message, simply looked at John and said, can, can we go with Jesus too? And John's like, go. And then soon after, John would be arrested because he knew his spot on the stage was about to be taken. 
And he knew that that's the way it was supposed to be. So how do we receive this testimony? This is the so what part of today's teaching. What are we supposed to do with that? Verse 33. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. He's certified that God is truthful. What does it mean to certify that God is truthful? I'll tell you what it isn't. What it doesn't mean is I'll give God a try. You know, I'm going to date God a few times. We're going to kind of hang out, see if we got the same thing in common, see if, you know, if there's any connection. Really? Don't bother. Because being a disciple of God is like being married. And you're going to be able to insert your own punchlines here anytime you want now, okay? You don't try marriage, do you? Maybe that's what's wrong in culture today. Is we think the word commitment means I'll give you a shot. You don't try marriage. Well, for instance, in today's world, well, we, were, we weren't happy, so we decided not to be together anymore. Don't get married if you want happiness. I know. <laughs> I know. I didn't mean that to be funny. First hour, I had to get, gather them back together. Don't get married because you want happiness. Get married if you want love. Because love can withstand even the periods where there's no happiness and where you are so different and where you have to learn to love a person who you don't always like. My wife can give you a lesson on how to love someone she doesn't like for the last 30 years, you see, uh, and I've given her that reason. But if you want to be married, you don't say, let's try it. No, no, you get married until death do us part. For rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, You don't parent, you don't have children to see if you like it. Are you with me? That's funny. There's horror. They're yours forever. And even when you raise them and train them and they move out, grandparents in this room, talk back to me right now. No matter how many kids your kids have, they're always your kids. You'll parent them until the day one of you is no longer here. To follow Jesus is not simply saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and stick my toe in the water to see if I like it. Nope, cannonball, baby. It's the only option you're going to have. Do you want to be a disciple? Jesus said, come and die. He didn't say, come and be inconvenienced. He didn't say, hey, follow me as long as your schedule allows it. What did he say? Follow me. End of sentence. Come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. And what do you do with the cross? You kill somebody. That's what you do with the cross. It wasn't meant to be a decoration. We can use it as decoration because it testifies to Christ. But if you and I are trying to fit Jesus into the lives we're making for ourselves, we are on this side of the line and that's the worst place to be. The best place is to decrease so that he can increase. And that means the death of me. Hebrews 3.13 tells us, exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened. It's interesting. Why is the authority and lack of clarity, or lack of authority and lack of clarity, why is that in most churches? Why is that in my personal life? Why may it be in yours? Because the word of God does not richly dwell in us. We, We believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about. He flies above us. We know that he has the authority. He just doesn't talk about things he thinks about God. He speaks the words of God. We know that to be true, and yet we don't know what the words of God are because the world says, you know, if, as long as you have a little five or six-minute God thought every morning, no, 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 listen to me. 
we have to decrease if he's going to increase. Which means we have to say no to good things to say yes to greater things. We have to turn off our televisions. You don't have to answer every email. Facebook isn't giving you anything eternal. If you're spending 10 minutes on Facebook, then take that 10 minutes and redeem it. Spend 10 minutes in the word. Listen to the clarity and authority of Jesus. And get to know who he is. I'm not saying this in an angry tone because I'm mad at you. The world has stolen our time. It's our greatest treasure. And so we don't have time to know the word of God, but we can know what someone likes or dislikes politically. Ick. What a waste of time. Focus on the words. Exhort one another daily lest you be hardened. Because this is what the scripture says. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. There is nothing of greater value than to know Jesus Christ and to choose him. Verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. Jesus knows what is true firsthand. He was involved in the accident of sin. He saw it occur and he can tell you why it happened and what was the result. Verse 34, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. He is full of the power of God, and he displayed that for us, of what a life of following God and serving God looks like. And then verses 35 and 36. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Do you see the authority there? This is all his and will one day return to him. And when it does, those that are his will celebrate And those that are not will have to answer the question, what was so important in your life that you didn't understand how Jesus was offering you hope? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. You have to step over the line. You have to choose, is Jesus going to be the authority in your life or are you? or his television, or his work, or his fame, or his sports, or his music, or his whatever it is that I struggle with every day. I can listen to a brand new album released by a group that I enjoy. I'll spend time on Spotify. I'll check my email. I'll be on Twitter. I'll do all of these. I'm not saying you do. I do it. And we'll find that I can go a day or two, and I never sat down in the presence of God and the authority of God's word and let it speak. The world owns my heart in too many places. I have to step over the line every single day. So here's how I want us to be challenged. Some of you will feel today that what I've said just isn't right. It's unrealistic. It's just too big. It's not real. No one actually lives that way. And you'll fight against it. And you may be currently sitting here right now fighting against it. And there's grace in this place. We believe that the more you know Jesus, the less you'll fight. Some of you will feel threatened and you'll resent it. Didn't come to church to have someone yell at me about Facebook. Truth is, how are you spending your life? And by whose authority are you living it? Some of us will accept it, but we'll disengage. It's too big, it's too much. I have to start completely over. I don't even know how to begin. Mark, I am so underwater right now. I can't even get through a week. I've got so much to do. I disappoint so many people. I have so many deadlines coming. You want me to add something else? No, I want you to say no to a good thing, to say yes to a greater thing. It's hard. It's really hard. You have to die. 
But we're called to embrace it, to celebrate it, to surrender to it, to say to Jesus, I must decrease so you can increase. Teach me how to do that. And when you read the scriptures, you'll hear a gentle voice speak to you hope, grace, and peace, not condemnation. But I ask you today to step over the line. Choose for yourself this day who will be the real authority in your life. The one who can bring hope and peace and grace or the one who's struggling every day to make it. If you don't know what it means to be a disciple and follow Jesus, I would like to invite you to begin a conversation. Come out in the foyer during the next song or wait till after the service or but in the corner you'll see a prayer station. Go talk to one of our counselors, one of our staff, one of our elders. Find me in the hallway. I'd love to engage you in a conversation because stepping over that line is difficult. It will kill you and it will bring you to life. To follow Jesus means I must decrease. He must increase. And that's the way it ought to be. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.